This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. It is a May day in 2020, and I am coming to you on Nipah land here in Massachusetts at uh, the home of my birth. Um, I am sort of the area that I grew up in, basically, um, that again is, is, is just important for me to name because I only knew it as Ashland, Massachusetts growing up. And we had uh, a team called the, the Nipmuc, you know, soccer team. And, and yet, of course, these are the indigenous people that were displaced and whose land was uh, taken and stolen and uh, upon which I am sitting now. Uh, the conversation that I'm going to have with you today um, is so exciting to me. I just met this person uh, about a month ago, but somehow I just feel this immediate kindred spirit. Dr. Manuel Zamajipa, LPCS, is the director and co-founder of the Institute of Chicano Chicano Psychology based in Austin, Texas, where he conducts community workshops as well as professional development training for educators and mental health professionals on issues related to Chicanx, Latinx, wellness, cultural identity, and mental health from a cultural strengths framework, which is really what I want to unpack with him today. He's also Associate Dean of Counseling at Austin Community College District, where he coordinates the delivery of mental health services to the student population and he has facilitated all kinds of presentations and training and all kinds of peer review publications. And you're fabulous. Welcome, Manuel, to Rebooted. <laughs> Thank you very much, Francesca. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited yeah. to have this conversation. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I'm so excited. Well, we met because you were offering a platica, a workshop. Um, tell people about what the workshop was, because I just I just loved even the the title of it. And and, and yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, as, as you know, um, we're moving to virtual online platicas now um, because of our situation with um, social distancing and COVID. Um, and so it's been great because we've been able, like, for example, connection with you um, wouldn't have happened um, if we were doing the face-to-face platicas. We, we've been doing both, but now this has given us a chance to reach even even farther, make these connections. The one that you joined us for was called Therapy is Ours, 
um, destigmatizing and decolonizing uh, mental health. And um, and the premise of, of that, and we can talk more well, if, we, if uh, we'd yeah. like, is just the idea that um, while typical Western modern day, you know, therapy, the way the, the roots are from Freud and all that, while that was constructed in a European sense, and when we think of that idea of therapy and counseling and the field, we think of that. But the notion for us and our people and our ancestors and many indigenous peoples, even today across the world, is the wisdom that we've always known that there is healing through talk. I mean, our people ancestrally always reached out to our elders. We reached out to our circle. There was no stigma about keeping things, you know, within. There were always people that were, um, you know, they were trained, so to speak, in, in having these conversations with the community. So it's kind of a, it's, well, it's, it is, it's a pushback against that kind of um, idea that therapy is a white people thing. You know, yeah. and it's a it's it's two hands like the way it's constructed. Of course, these days and the classes we take and the licenses we get, you know, that wasn't made for us in mind, black and brown people, indigenous peoples, for sure. But it doesn't mean that we have to step back and and then allow a whole community claim on a practice that is within our legacy. Um, it's not just Talking through healing is very wise, and we have that wisdom. So it's kind of a reclaiming. We're talking about that also a little bit, you and I. Mm -hmm. Kind of like reclaiming that we have these these wisdoms, and so and so that platica that you were that you joined us um, for was kind of around that notion that um, currently we do have to destigmatize this idea of mental health for a lot of our communities. There's misinformation, there's cultural mistrust of, of the therapy um, and even people of color, they get trained in certain models and then we stick to those models and they become culturally incongruent for the community. So, um, so we understand the reason why there's certain stigma. And so, and so we need to destigmatize that process at the same time we don't want to lead our community to an institution where when they get there, moving through all that destigmatization, they're re-stigmatized or re-traumatized or re-victimized by mm. a therapist or a field that doesn't validate their cultural values, their way of communicating. So while we need to destigmatize, we also need to decolonize the field. Right. So the, yeah. So the destigmatization part is for people that are aware, like us. And, and talking with our community, for the community. But the decolonization part is people like us changing the field, like holding the field accountable. Yes. So you can't have one without the other. Uh, I love that. Destigmatize yeah. and decolonize. It's two sides of the same coin, right? To right. get back to this reclamation process, this reclaiming. Um, and it makes me think like sati, the mind, the word for mindfulness, it actually yeah. means like remembering, like re, like, you know, like bringing, yep. yes, exactly that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this is like to what? Your original goodness, your whole nature, your essential self, your wisdom body, your eternal consciousness, your, your full spirit rooted and embodied in your own little bag of bones and also ultimately connected through all the ancestors and all of space-time forever because you're made of stardust anyway. We right. are, right? We are. We are. Yes, we are. We're so, all made of the same stuff. We're all yeah. connected. 
Right. So it's, which isn't the spiritual bypassing stuff that I think we see in a lot of mindfulness communities, which is, oh, we're all one and we're all connected. And then having no heed paid attention to the structural inequities and ways in which other people have been forced um, over time legally and through other acts of violence, which we see so often um, right. that, that are not equal. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there is an awareness um, within this type of reclamation that um, like several people in the field and like Lillian Cosmas-Diaz also mentions this idea of, or she also uses this idea that's been around about calling back the spirit Mm. in this work. And, And just very briefly, I mean, what that means is exactly what you're saying, not decontextualizing, just kind of having that process, but realizing that for communities of color, people that were marginalized, oppressed, calling back the spirit is also a reclamation of historical, ethnic, cultural roots and resilience and resistance and flourishing. And so that that, that all of that is within that same process and movement and being and healing. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, Dr. Lillian Gomez Diaz has written extensively about the issues that we're talking about. And I tried to get her on the podcast and maybe still will, but it hasn't happened yet. But I, I think Great. her work is is really fabulous and aligned with what we're talking about. Yeah. And frankly, what's needed. I mean, a whole other part of this conversation, destigmatizing decolonization, we're seemingly sort of saying it like in service to um people of culture, as Resma Medicum talks about it, which I love, as opposed to even just saying people of color, right? Right, right, so yes, like, I agree. Yeah. I like that, right? I kind of, I, so I use it, but I, I, I know that I didn't come up with it. Um, but, but, that, but that it's good also for people who are centered and who are, you know, white or light skin privileged or who otherwise feel or advantaged, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. As he also yeah. says, um, because I, I have this thing where I'm just like, well, where do all these neuroses come from? Where does this <laughs> feeling of separation come from? If part of my existence is validated by me being better than you or by anyone, even if it's cooked in to my mm-hmm. conditioning, not into my maybe obviously intentional good person day-to-day living, but right. it's cooked in there because it's like the air we breathe, the water yeah. we swim in, that, that, like, that takes a toll on me too as a person with advantage. Yes, it absolutely does. It, it's within our DNA. It's within our lineage of our experiences. Um, and we have this, I think you're speaking to this, and it's been said before, and, and uh, my partner Jessica talks about this too in some of the Platicas, which is we, um, we're, we miss things that we don't even know we had. It's like we're not aware of missing something we had. We're not aware, but we but we still have that longing. We still have that missing of something that we're not even aware that we lost. Yeah. Um, we just know that there was a disconnect. There was a disconnect. Um, but we don't even have a reference point for it. Um, I love but, that word, just longing. I just want to like pause there for two seconds. Is that it, I always feel like that's the point. Of like, oh, good. You have the longing. <laughs> that means yeah. you're going to try <laughs> to go and be a seeker. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, like, sorry, it feels terrible, but I'm glad yeah. you have it because that means you're going to keep looking, you know. Yes. And, and and I think it was Rumi. I don't know, maybe the Sufi poet who said, you know, yeah. I have to love the longing or fall in love with the longing or something along those lines. And I was like, oh, good. I don't have to fight it. Right. That's right. I mean, let it do its 
let it do what it's supposed to do, right? Let it guide you where where you need to be. Yeah. Um, because it's 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 showing us that there is that gap, there is that disconnect, there is something that we still need um, for that sense of wholeness. Um, and that, yeah. Well, what what one of the things that my root teacher, Dr. Jack Cornfield, Cornfield, who I mean a lot of people know, um, is sort of. I mean, he's on. I'm. He's in many ways the reason why I'm even here doing this right now with you. Um, and anyway, he always talks about ceremony and the importance of ceremony and the need for the reclamation of ceremony. So talk to me about how rich um, ceremony is and, and the beautiful one that was there by um, Sokumati at the workshop that we did um, or that yeah. I participated in. But talk a little bit about, if you will, about that and how that is not something you would typically find in a Western therapy session. <laughs> sure, of course. No, thank you for, for yeah, opening that door. Um, that's something that we intentionally integrate and, and not even as a strategy, right? It's just who we are at the Institute and what we do and how we approach healing and, and how we broaden our idea of wellness and well-being and mental health. But um, we also, of course, practice and are part of um, our Mexica Indigenous uh, medicine. Um, we're part of our Kalpuli here in the Austin area. Teocali um, Teoyolo, Kalpuli Teocali Teoyolo. And, uh, and so ceremony is is a part of our life. It's part of uh, what we do within the Platicas, within the work that we do within our life. I mean, we have we have our Abuelo Fuego, we have our fire pit here in the backyard, and and, you know, the family knows that when we when we um, light a fire, it's not like, it it's makes everything completely different even from when we were a kid, you know, lighting a fire and putting something in the fire, it's not a bad thing in sense, but now the awareness of even doing that is a ceremony. So that is a sacred space. It's always a sacred fire. Um, we don't barbecue over it. We don't put anything over it. Um, and the piece there that this, that, that as one example is, you know, we're we're asking, we're calling forth the Abuelo Fuego, the grandfather fire, the oldest element uh, in Earth, in, in our Madre Tierra, our Mother Earth, and we're we're asking it to come be with us, mm. and and that's a special interaction um, because it can bring light for guidance. It can bring warmth for comfort. It can bring that heat for that passion that we need. Um, it can burn away things that are connected to us with that fire. Uh, it can help us dance, like the flames. Yeah. Um, so, um, so when we do the work that we do, it's, it's not just like, you know, typical maybe psychotherapy group for the mental health people. I've mentioned this before, like, it makes sense when you do group work, you're in a circle, but it's always very, um, it's more a sense of logistics and, and utilitarian kind of a form, right? But as we talk about, the circle is one of the most sacred, longest type of um, gatherings and ways of being because it connects all of our energy, right? And as, as uh, Plastiani, I don't know if you said it in the thing, but it, if we could see it when we're on a circle, you could see all of our energies flowing in between us when we reconnect. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's important that when we're in the circle, there's always somewhat of an even space because we're 
honoring each other's energy. And, and if we're too far away, we're not able to connect. And if we're too close, we're, you know, we're not allowing the energy to flow. So, so we always start in a circle and we can all see each other's eyes and we can also offer our intentions. Um, and it sets the stage for any type of healing or work that needs to be done. It grounds us. And that's another piece too. I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it, it's true. We talk about grounding exercises. We talk about the grounding techniques and all of that is real and it's true. And we talk about it, but even that comes from very, you know, indigenous ways of being. I mean, it literally means putting your feet on the ground. It's grounding. Right. You let your mother earth take whatever you're offering from you because she can handle that she is strong and powerful yeah. and we sit around the fire we sit in sweat lodge the mascal we 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 ground and we allow that energy to root us and so and so as as you know as meetings evolve now you know we talk about grounding techniques and all that's true but it's always important to remember the roots of you know so we're ancestrally we're not learning anything when people teach us about grounding techniques, I, know. You know? I, mean, <laughs> I know that's what we've been you know so, so ceremony is kind of really what it does is honors everyone it's always an awareness not a, you know so we don't forget and we're we're honoring the people that are with us the energies that are with us we pay attention we ask permission and not permission in the sense of one being is more supreme than another but permission and honoring one's own agency, energy, space, everything's an invitation. So, um, so we, we use the, the, the idea of the circle. We use the cantos, you know, that we were, um, that Tosfiani did for us at Canto, and, and which invokes um, some of the spirits that were, the energies that we're connecting with. Uh, and we do that within our workshops or clubbing as we always have a, a fire, a poposhkomi, um, where you put the fire in and you hold. And so um, that always is a cleansing. It's a limpia, it's a smudging, kind mm. of all, all the same thing where it allows what the energies that are coming up. The smoke is that connection between the physical and the spiritual. It, mm. It's that in-between matter. And so what what that does for us with the agua, the fuego, the fire, and the smoke does for us is when we're doing, that's why it is Olympia and the cleansing because the energy that's coming off, it takes it for us, you know, and it lifts it. And, um, and so now going back, I, I don't see how we could have like a, a, a platica workshop mental health without having that ceremony connected to that piece. Um, because it brings us all together as that community in that space and that time. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's other things, but. Well, no, I mean, you could finish or you could say a little more if you want to about that. I mean, it's all beautiful and wonderful and, and so healing. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, I think that that, that is, I guess what makes some of the work that we're doing and similar minded people, what, what makes it different? You know, what makes it this thing? We're not doing this to be different. We're doing it because it's necessary. It's what's been missing. It's that aching, that peace, you know, that was not there. Um, it's that healing that we need to bring forth. Um, I don't remember if I 
mentioned this, but it's, you know, we, we talk about the reality of intergenerational trauma, right? Right. And so, uh, but it's like the concept of the seven, seven generations. We, we, we talk about the intergenerational trauma. We're becoming, the field is becoming aware of that. It's important. Um, we try to communicate that to the people we work with. But we have to be careful that um, we're always aware of the impact that that has um, as healers, as providers. Because what that looks like for the community that we work with, it could also mean intergenerational trauma means multi-generational healing, right? Mm. And so while we can do a lot of healing in our lifetime and in our, in our time working and who we are to try to break that cycle and heal our family, we also have to be gentle and patient with ourselves, with our clients, the community, and realize that every piece of healing we do is important, significant, it changes that life. It's a ripple, right? But it, for that healing to fully take place, it may need to be our children, our children's children, our communities, because of the hundreds of years of trauma that we've had, um, wounds take time to heal and they heal in different ways. And so I think we need to be cognizant of that that whole process. Right. It's not like an instant thing, right? Like we live in such a data-driven, tech, digital, instantaneous sort of Mm -hmm. quantum leaping, you know, instant gratification kind of society. And we're just like, well, it's not, you know, I was, I was actually having a conversation with a family member about a week or two ago. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, had given up on, you know, trying to do therapy again. And I sort of was explaining some of the things that I was doing. And, and, and I was like, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's going to happen overnight, but every drop is a drop in the bucket for everyone, whether you have kids or not, whether you have, you know, like it's, it's for, you're part of a continuum. And I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, like the mindfulness community listening to this um, podcast, it's like, when you really understand sort of the Buddhist teachings and you really understand things like quantum physics, or you really Mm -hmm. look at the way the earth, the stars, the air, the water, the ocean, the sand, like where does the ocean end and the sand begin, the beach begin? Right. Where does my nose end and my eye begin? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where did I stop being born and start dying? Mm -hmm. Because as far as I know, Every, you know, from the minute I'm out of the womb, I'm dying. Right. Right. (laughs) I'm also growing. (laughs) So it's for this process. It's getting used to this non-fixed identity, this process, this ever-changing, this interdependence, this up Mm -hmm. and down and all around and being with that and then saying, okay, well, I'm still going to do this piece right here, right now that I can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the these categories that you were talking about, they're not not meaningful, but they're just ways that we we need to demarcate certain things on a very basic, yeah, like uh, neurological neurological level to get through the world. You need to know that that's your eye and that's your nose and this is the beach and this is, so that we can experience things, but. It's not arbitrary, but they are classifications, demarcations, simply to help us navigate. But when we look at what you're saying, you're right. I mean, there really is no separation in any of that. It's all continuous connection. And 
that's that balance, like understanding we need those those um, demarcations, but we get lost in that in this world. We came from knowing before, and then we started over relying on that. And so we need to also get back to understanding how we're connected, understanding the continuity of energies in life. And, um, and you said something else that also made sense probably for mental health professionals. I'm trying to get back to it, but maybe it'll come to me. I don't know. You said something about that. But um, so, you know, I think, again, that that balance, you know, and for the Mexica and some Nahua-speaking peoples, that's that ome teo. Ome and Nahua meaning two, and teo meaning um, um, spirit, or people used to interpret it, you know, as a god, but it's not god, it's like energy. Mm. sacred energy so the energy of two of duality right and and when we have those that sense of duality that's when we're most in balance and when we don't that's why it's kind of looking at mental illness or mental health struggles the first question for us is always or to have someone reflect is well, what's out of balance right right what's out of balance in your thinking in your life and whatever what's out of balance yeah, I love that. And, and in you know, in the mindfulness world, the, the the word that comes to mind is equanimity, which is sort of, you know, your ability to be responsive appropriately and not reactive, right? To not be triggered in a trauma response or something along the lines of, you know, mm, I'm, I'm, I'm fearing something or, or I'm grabbing and holding on to something or I'm deluding myself about something and sort of checking out um, as, a, as, a, as an automatic, but having the equanimity, having the balance, having the perspective, having the mindfulness, having the embodied spirit ground and connect me to right. my deepest essential self and have from that place, um, the loving awareness place, have that place be what can inform my wise action. Right. or engagement or not engagement, yeah. um, but that it's coming from that place of balance, right? And in these mindfulness worlds, you know, there's this whole non-duality community, which mm-hmm. is beautiful in a lot of ways, yeah. right? So like not to, right? right. And at yes. the same time, acknowledging, yes, we are body and we are spirit. Yeah, like, and, you know, it's the yin yang and that's, there's mm-hmm. nothing new there. Right. No, absolutely not. No, there's nothing new there. There's nothing new. And we can exist in any aspect of that continuum of those of those of any type of polar duality um and the goal is never to be on one or the other or to be necessarily in the middle all the time the goal like it's not even a goal it's just what i'm talking about is that there's an awareness um that we can be on that continuum in ways that makes sense for us. And when we are lost or having a hard time, it's that invitation to reflect. For me, what am I having too much of, too little of? Maybe it's good for me to have that I'm more on this side of this, whatever particular energy, and that fits for me. But maybe it's been one, two, five years, 10 years where other things are happening where it's like, okay, I need to water this over here a little bit. Yes, you know? yes. What's, does it mean that? I was doing something wrong necessarily in my life, but what needs to, what do I need to pay attention to or be aware of here? And then when we're there, we can see, okay, do I need to stay here? Do I go back here? Like what? Yeah. 
So it's shifting. It's shifting. It reminds me of there's a story. I don't know who told it and what retreat or something I went on where like they said to the one guy, you know, gee, you're really, really stressed out. Here's a cigarette. You better, you know, like chill out, whatever. And the other one is like, you stop smoking enough of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. like not that I'm an advocate of cigarettes in general anyway, sure. period. But I'm, what I'm just saying is, is it's like, you know, one person, they pull back from the side of the road because they're tipping and leaning over into the ravine on the left. The other one, they're pulling back from the right. You know, like yeah. just the idea that like, it's, we're not about trying to get somewhere. Like they say about happiness. Right. Happiness isn't this place that you get to and stay at. It's your ability to relate to the current circumstances that are actually present in a way that is balanced and hopefully discerning and wise, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, and and so I think all these practices and it's going back to the rootedness of what you're talking about. I mean, rerooted, I have my tree here because I mean, that's what I'm trying to say, right? Like right. we got to get back to this, like it's right here. And when I leave meditations, I often say, you know, ah, yes, we can feel our feet on the floor and on the ground connecting with mother earth on the earth, but also mm-hmm. of the earth. Of the earth, yeah, right. Like. That's, that is the sense of connection, from? right? That is that's it. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's I think part of coming from the mental health, the traditional, typical Western, you know, following suit with a lot of individualized individualist societies like um, like ours um, is. There's been an over. It's never an absence, but there's been an over-reliance on this idea of moving forward, of, of goals, of moving towards something, which has its place, but it's this over-reliance. And, and what we lack is that sense of rootedness, right? It's like a tree or a plant without roots. It, if the roots don't take, it, it only goes so far, and then that's it. Mm. And that's kind of this whole idea of um, not needing... Not, the field has had to come back over the last, you know, couple of years and to pay attention to um, the idea of culture, the idea of um, hopefully decolonizing. Um, because what we were seeing before is essentially kind of the message of the United States is like, your past doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. What matters is here and now and moving forward. All done in a very positive vein. But the problem with that is it, it assumes that the past is negative. It assumes that the past is a shackle. It assumes that the past only holds you back. And it ignores the wisdom and ignores just the very basic essence of the need for roots. And so it's been a very lopsided growth uh, of thought in only one direction in terms of like mental health field and individualistic ideas of health and wellness and well-being. And and it's not going to make sense, and it's going to be harmful to communities who are very much aware of the importance of rootedness and connection and, and ancestors, and who's come not who's come you know um, not not only who's coming in front of us, but where we've come from. Right? Um, and so it seems crazy, but. It shouldn't be, but it's kind of a revolutionary kind of thought in, in a lot of our, our ways of thinking in terms of wellness and healing, and um, especially in mental health. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I, 
I so appreciate everything that you're saying. And, and, and this piece of like decolonizing, you know, therapy, I mean, it's something that I've been talking a lot about, um, with someone who is, um, a friend now of mine, uh, who wrote an article called whiteness on the couch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, her name is Dr. Natasha Stovall. And, um, I don't know, I, I read it and we interviewed, I interviewed her for the podcast. We did the podcast together. And now we're sort of trying to have conversations with folks about, you know, how do we use whatever the therapy models are to, you know, sort of interrogate, um, these very things that are structural issues, right? Like uh, Dr. Daniel Gattambile is someone that I interviewed for a podcast last week about um, the book that he wrote called The History of Psychoanalysis. And, you know, we sort of are coming to this idea that within the framework is both the oppression and the liberation, potentially. And that, you know, the invitation is sort of like, is there a way to, what is the best way to decolonize, you know, mental health or therapy can, is there anything in there that we can use? But it seems that cooked into that, the part that doesn't get talked about that much is social location work, self-interrogation work, exploration work, like you say, because the past is demonized or pathologized or something, that it's not seen as a resource. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of just blathering on, but what do you have Mm -hmm. to say about, about that in terms of how do we go about the business of decolonizing mental health and integrating it more in these other ways? And how do we how do we maybe invite folks who are centered or who are otherwise in advantage or privileged positions or in the role of therapists that haven't done a lot of their own work or haven't done a lot of work interrogating whiteness or structural racism or see the issues around race pertaining to people of color, but not as pertaining to whiteness. Right. They're, they're all... So there's so much. <laughs> to, <laughs> I know. To, to... Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, um, so of, of course, so let me start with one piece of this, you know, that that I talk about when this when I when we do have these conversations. And, and one part is if we look at it as the institutional aspect of, of mental health structure and systems, that may I mean well, let me just get my thoughts out. Okay, so yeah. if we look at that, we're in a and we assume the best. We assume that all of us are in it together. That's always <laughs> then, true. Um, yeah. yeah. Then we're in a conundrum in the mental health field in the sense that we are finally getting parity in terms of people that need to take insurance, right? And reimbursements and being recognized. We're finally getting parity with medical practice where now therapists can be reimbursed. They can be billed as, as a medical need. Um, as treatment, whereas before, and this is still a struggle, right? But whereas before it really was just like, that's, you know, that's a luxury. That's okay. You're just talking through things. That's not real medicine, you know, westernized medicine. Um, So the conundrum is we're finally getting parity with that. But to get parity, we're having to really buy into and advance the medical model, the westernized medical model, which is diagnosing, which locates diseases within the person only, right? So forget about the spiritual, the interconnectedness or the historical. It's like, it's something within you that we can target and fix and repair, right? Which is the case for some people, right? It's not that that's not a reality, right? But but what we have to say is we're having to say that is mental health and that is the treatment. And so 
at the same time, we have voices like ours and other people saying, and, and me always never fully buy into the medical model as the one on and be all of everything, you know. So how do we gain more influence? How do we get people to recognize the importance of mental health if the only way that that's happening is moving into a medical model? So that's an unanswered question right now, right. but that's where we're it's at. It's an open question. Yeah, right. So that's the, the piece of the larger picture. But within ourselves and the practices that, we're, that, that we have and the people that we connect with, um, I think just a very couple of things that come to my mind is, you know, we try to be apolitical and all that, you know, but it's integrated into everything we do. And I don't mean political parties, right? I mean, I think one of the things that the mental health field does because it's grown so much in the U.S. is that it does a good job of integrating this notion of capitalism in our language and in the way we think of our relationships. And by that, I mean being aware of how we lay claim to even the simple things. And this is not to point fingers or you're bad or whatever. It's just about the conversation mm -hmm. bringing awareness. And I, I do this. Um, I'm, so it's this journey for me, but even small things like my clients, right? Well, they're not your clients. You don't mm. own them. That's a very capitalist way of thinking of product, right? right. And of outcome measures, right? So the therapy is only good if we can measure it with a particular outcome that shows that we have a valuable product. Mm. Right? So, um, and that's, you know, a, a that's, um, a process of colonization because you are I know I shirk imprinted. back just did you say that I'm just like oh no <laughs> sorry yeah. go on because <laughs> yeah. you're imposing ways of being and experiencing that may not fit for everyone that we're working with or talking with you know and the why why it's invisible and why it's hard sometimes for our white colleagues to do that self-reflection and look at that whiteness piece is because most practitioners and most clients are white and so they both come from and i'm overgeneralizing but for the sake of like putting the ideas out there mm -hmm. so they both come from you know an integration and um beliefs values where this kind of capitalist way individualizing way of of being and living and working and loving and everything works so it's invisible because you can have this language and this interaction and it makes sense for certain segments of the population. What doesn't make sense is when you have, you know, more of a, a cultural incongruency in basic worldview and values. And, um, and so the decolonizing part is looking at who is sharing that language, who is sharing those frameworks and understanding why it's invisible a lot of the times and why we need to make that invisible visible when we look at different cultural, social, familial, historical values from different communities. And looking at the language, language creates reality. Mm. What we say is not, this is what I, you know, coming in, you know, so what we say isn't representational of reality. We don't make words necessarily or solely 
to represent an experience accurately. When we create words and language and we put it out there, we are creating a reality. And so our language matters in, in how we talk about. That's why we, those of us in these conversations, we also go really around about what do we call this interaction that we do? Mm-hmm. Therapy comes from the medical model, um, but definitions can evolve, right? But, and it's not necessarily pathologizing, but, um, you know, the idea of, of healing in a certain way is therapy. Counseling is very broad and can be okay. Consultation is more like gives people, there's more of a give and take, more of egalitarian, but it's also very individualistic, that notion of consultation, even the idea of a client, right? Mm. So those are things that we look at, but the things that I would question are how we look at the people we work with, like not belonging to us, not assuming that change happens in a certain way. So they're not responding to what we're doing. That doesn't mean they're not ready for change, right? That's Mm. a very lazy um, reason that a lot of people go to, well, they just might not be ready for it. And it's a way that it looks like we're not blaming the victim, blaming the victim, but we kind of are, we, we, we are, we're making assumptions, right? Yeah. When we hit this idea of they may not be ready to change, the first thing we should do is what are we not willing to change about the way we're working, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are the, and people always like to say, well, we offer therapy, they come if they want to, they don't come if they don't want to. Um, It's all their choice. Yes, in some degree, but that's decontextualizing. If you contextualize it, my answer is no, because the mental health field invites people to come. That's exactly what we're saying. Come to us. You're having a problem? Come to us. Here's my website. Here's my number. Here's the licenses. Here's the state boards that say I'm qualified. If you have a problem, come to us. We'll help you heal. And then we say, well, if it's not fitting for them, it's up to them. It's their choice. It's a cop-out. It's lazy. Um, If they're not connecting with what you're doing, we need to reflect. What are we not changing? Where are we not meeting them? And then we get some answers like, well, you know what? That's not the type of work I do, maybe. Or that's not where I am. Or this is um, this is part me. And this is what's comfortable for me. This is how I connect. Or I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not looking at where my privilege is, where my biases are. Um, yeah. But that needs to, that needs to happen. Um, that the person may not come back because they feel like they're not being attuned to enough that the person they're talking to, who's the quote unquote therapist, is kind of just blind to their lived experience. And they don't even have an awareness around the fact that, um, oh, what you're dealing with isn't just a thing of you and your family and your whatever. It's a whole cultural thing and it's a whole structural thing. And so, and, 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 and me in it, and yes, I have this, if I'm a white privileged or light skin privileged or whatever advantage, whatever word you want to use and that and have it interrogated that, studied that, understood that, gotten to know some of the history of that because certainly you're not going to learn it in grade school. Um, You know, done work around that, grieved it, mourned it. Like, I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's also a transformative process that I think seasons you as a human 
as a person, as someone who can sit in circle with a wider and wider and deeper and deeper range of people. And that has nothing to do with resistance, quote unquote, from the client. Right. That has to do with limits, boundaries, and knowing that like, I need to get the hell out of here because this person just is not going to get me. And I'm almost, you know, it's almost like resubjugation of more trauma, which is the last thing I need. It's the last thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's what happens to so many of us. And that's why the onus is on, you know, those of us in, in, in healing roles, the onus is always on us to look at our own work and look at us as individuals and how we're working and trying to do the deeper understanding. Uh, the onus is on us to take those steps to see if we have can make the right connection with the person in front of us. You know, again, that that notion, that capitalistic notion of work, right? Um, I'm so proud of my client. They're doing the work. Well, I mean, that, that might be true for some people, but that's not my problem with that is that the taken for granted assumption that that's what it should be always and that that fits for everyone always because the goal may or may not be the work and the work already is a capitalistic notion. Like this is only valuable if there's labor yeah. for the product. <laughs> right. Right. Now, you know, of course the criticisms are, and I'm not saying the opposite. You know, the criticisms are, well, how do you get something done if you don't put the hard work? Of course, I'm not saying that work, you know, our own internal push and effort isn't part of something sometimes, or that for some people that works really well. What I'm saying is the blind, taken for granted assumption that work equals health, like for that work is mental health. Yes. That that's all it should be. It's like we're seeing with one eye only. That's, that's the thing we need to look at. I love what you're saying. It reminds me of what um, Lama Rado and a, a Buddhist teacher that I am, you know, he's a friend in my head. I mean, we've done podcasts together and stuff. I don't know. I mean, we're friends, <laughs> but not like, like we didn't grow up together or anything. But anyway, um, he's just a love bug. But he said something along the lines of like, I'm interested in people doing their work, but not in working or something like that, which points to what you're saying around yeah. the idea of like, I mean, the way one says it is, is whatever you can split hairs on that, but in the sense of like, I want you to be open to these questions. I want you to live with curiosity. I want you to be, you know, maybe, you know, looking under the rocks and, and doing that. I mean, I didn't do any of this work until Jack asked me or she said, Oh yeah, you might want to look into that. And I started to look into that and I was just like, Oh God. Oh God. That's tough. That's tough. I did not. Yes. And then I was like, basically like under a rock for myself for like six months. And then I was like, okay, time to figure out what to do with all this. Um, yeah. But that's a process, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and, and so that piece of, of, of working, like it doesn't have to be such an effort, like that it can be something that emanates from, right? right. And, and that also makes me think of this, I don't know if it's a word in Sati or Pali, it's a word in uh, Pali or, Sanskrit, but it's uh, virya, and it means like either striving or effort. Like sort mm -hmm. of like, no, it's okay to like be committed to something. So in the way that like we point our intention of the compass of our heart toward balance, toward right. openness, toward 
reconnection, that we're inviting in that, like you say, conversation with the ancestors, with the Abuelo Fuego, mm -hmm. but that we're not like trying to make that happen. Right. But we're open to the receiving mm -hmm. of that. And we're in relationship with the receiving and the asking and the presencing of that. And how that Absolutely. feels very different than does. work. <laughs> it feels very different than work. And it reminds me that we have this knowledge. We, we see it. And it's how we use it. And so, like, in typical mainstream therapy, um, and maybe you've heard this in, in your studies as well, where one of the things that we're when we realize that, that connection is happening, we'll say something like, well, um, you're working harder than the client. Don't work harder than the client. That is very astute and it's wise. But again, from an individualistic capitalist framework, we're only aware of it when we're doing more work and the client's not doing enough work, right? And so it's still kind of, it still kind of um, looks at the client as from a negative perspective, right? Mm. Um, and and we never see it in the way that you're talking about where, and, and so we're telling they need to do more work if they're going to be worthy and valued in this process, right? Or if they're going to, we'll say that if they're going to value themselves, but that's, I think, disingenuous sometimes, not on purpose, but, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's exactly what you're saying, you know, being in that, in that, moving toward in that connection. And the mental health field can recognize that, but only, but they don't recognize it within themselves. They'll recognize it when the client is not mm -hmm. doing enough of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we need to, again, step back and look at our role and look at um, the value that we're giving the person and the persons in front of us sharing that space because it's it becomes a shared communal space in that moment um yeah. and there's no way around that unless we actively work to try to keep a disconnect <laughs> um and and i think that those boundaries i mean clearly nobody wants you to be sleeping with any of your clients right. or, you know, like, and, you know, taking, you know, mortgage, you know, advice or broke, you know, having them be right. your new mortgage broker or whatever it is. Like, that's not, that's just respectful um, limits. Right. right. But, Absolutely. but so there's ethics, there's ethics, you know, that's mm -hmm. why like mind people think of mindfulness is like everything. It's not like it's, it's, it's contact. It, it's, it's a piece of the whole framework of ethical living and wise yes. living which then would prevent what I just said, right? right? Like they call it the precepts, you know, wise speech, wise action, wise, you know, no intoxicants or whatever. And people interpret them in different ways. But the bottom line is, is there's a framework there for not being a jerk and not right. causing harm and um, to yourself or others. And, mm -hmm. that, and that, that what you're talking about is that now it's okay to like be a little of you there. You're not just this blank slate. How could you not be a messy human? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, we have professional ethics, personal ethics, and that emanates from having respect for that particular connection, interaction, relationship, the person in front of you. When you have that, 
then you can make a, a more authentic journey with that person. And there has, there's always, I mean, in fact, you know, that's what makes this work, you know, if you're a healer in any way, including mental health, social service, that's what makes this a distinct calling because the quote unquote instrument is who you are as a person. You know, that's what's going to make the difference. That's what that person's going to connect to. There's no one else like you. And so that, yes, we have some very basic guidelines of a profession where we share certain ideas that help people that we talk about with each other and certain professional ethics that we, we maintain. And those parameters are set up. But even the empirical science, you know, the what's called the common factors and um, the work by Bruce Wampel, you know, counseling psychologist. And even the empirical science says that, you know, second to, we already know outside factors, factors outside of therapy are the biggest factors in the success of therapy. <laughs> we don't know. It's all, yeah. you know. Besides that, it's the distinct, unique relationship that the client has with the person in front of them that's the most um, significant piece of what's, you know, quote, success, successful yeah. therapy. Yeah. So we can't take ourselves out of the process. It's who we are connected with what we're doing that makes that healing possible. I love that. And I think that may be a, a good place to kind of wind down and close because I think we've been talking forever. I could talk forever with you, but um, <laughs> our listeners are probably getting tired. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe inspired, I hope. Um, okay. Is there anything else about that, that that you might like to add or anything that, I mean, we you know, we could go on and on. Rasa Psychology is a website if you want to give yourself a shout out there where people can do some of these online workshops if they're curious about it. Yeah, that's the best place to look is rasapsychology.org. Um, it's a way to stay connected. I mean, you'll notice it's just a very straight up traditional, you know, not too fancy kind of website right now. It's just a way to communicate. Um, usually our next, Blathika, our next online event is always at the top of the page. Um, so it's just easy for people to connect to us. Um, you can talk to us or email us through there as well. You can also, of course, find us on Facebook and uh, that would be also good as well. Awesome. Um, I am so thrilled to talk to you about all of these things and hopefully um, we'll do more workshops with you and continue the conversation in all kinds of other ways. But um, I just want to give a big shout out, Dr. Manuel Zamarripa. I love that. I love to say, I can, my Spanish is terrible, <laughs> but, but it's fun. Um, I really thank you for being on Rebooted today, getting back in touch with Mother Earth, our ancestors, and um, our own innate wisdom and that which is, is just all around us. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. It was a good conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so oh, much. Yeah. Okay. Ciao.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.